Tonight's New Testament reading can be found on page three of your bulletin and is from 1 Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Thank you for the way you've been with us this entire service, Father. Your presence makes all the difference. We're wasting our time here unless you come to us, and you have been. I pray for every heart here that they would meet with you and know that they have met with you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last week we began our study in the book of Thessalonians, and we ended the passage with the Apostle Paul affirming the Thessalonians about their witness, that is, the sharing of their faith with other people. And it was quite powerful. It had extended hundreds of miles from their hometown. And it occurred because they were living in light of the return of Christ. They really believed that the Son of God would return to earth, and so that gave them an urgency. Now, in the Bible, um, all people are called to be witnesses, not just, quote-unquote, professional Christians, uh, missionaries or evangelists or pastors. Everybody that names themselves to be a follower of Christ is a witness. This is how God understands them to be. And it's a duty. It's a duty that God requires of those that would follow him, but it's also a joy. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of bringing good news to someone. You know, maybe it's, hey, you got the job. Or it's a boy, it's a girl. Good news. There's a a line in the prophet Isaiah where he says, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes salvation. By that, he's not referring to the toenail color or the muscularity of the feet, but rather their welcome. It's a, it's a metaphor of welcomeness. 
appreciation in anybody that has understood the Christian gospel, anybody that has tasted of the grace of God and the mercy and the forgiveness of God is thankful for the person that told them, right? I regularly think about the man that shared the gospel with me, probably a couple times a week. And so it's a powerful place to be in, and this goodness is literally what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of God's grace, the good news that God has not left us alone. The king has come to enter our mess and find us and reach us. And the message in and of itself is not only good, but this may surprise you, the messenger is good. The witness is good. I um, pulled jury duty about a month ago, and, uh, you know, I never get picked in my 12 years of doing this, and I always assumed it was because I'm a pastor. They never know if you're going to say hang him or let him loose, right? Is this guy really a hardliner? Is he really liberal? They don't know, but this time I got picked, and uh, I had to put my money where my mouth was. You know, all our talk in this church of serving the city and honoring, right, the government, and I was like biting my lip, okay. Uh, we all think we're so important, right? How can the city, how can the church, how can God go on with me on jury duty? You know, but he, he was able to. He was able to, surprisingly. But anyway, uh, you know, as we were debating the verdict, um, a lot of it was centering on the one eyewitness we had and their credibility, right? Back and forth going, but yeah, I believed her, but at that one point, you know, she seemed hesitant. She didn't want to come forth with the information. And then those other, someone else chimed in, but those other times, she seemed really irritated and hostile. And that she kept saying, well, you repeat the question. Would you repeat the question? It made us wonder about the credibility of the witness. Now, those of you that are in law here know this well, right? How a witness behaves can be the make or break of your case. Uh, you know, a bad witness is someone that tends to be annoyed, someone that is irritated, someone that's uncooperative. A good witness, on the other hand, is someone that gives direct answers, someone that keeps their emotions in check, someone that is considerate and respectful of what's being asked. There's a good witness and a bad witness. Well, in the Bible, we've also got those categories. In the Bible, false teachers often had false character. Bad witnesses had bad character. Good witnesses had good character. And that's what the Apostle Paul is basically talking about in this passage. He's reminding the Thessalonians of how he and Timothy and Silvanus were among them as witnesses. And that's what I want us to take a little time to look at this evening together. What kind of witnesses are we or should we be? First, we'll start with the bad gospel witness. And I think we could summarize this with two words, selfish gain. Selfish gain. Last summer, uh, my family and I were vacationing in Vermont, Grafton, Vermont, and we were staying at the home of uh, one of our elders, Baldwins. And across the street, they have some neighbors, Mark and Jerry, and so we've been getting to know them a little bit. And was talking with Mark and found out that Mark and I had, unfortunately, something in common. We were both part of the same cult. Uh, you don't often <laughs> meet someone and say, hey, we share that in common. 
Uh, the cult was the Boston Church of Christ. Now they go by the name the International Church of Christ. And I want to say this isn't like the traditional Church of Christ that you see in the South. This was a, a new creation in the 70s and 80s. I was in it for a couple months. He was in it for several years. And uh, they were not only um, cultic in their theology. They believed that you had to be baptized in their church by them in water to be a Christian. They were uh, cultic in their philosophy, basically uh, instructing people uh, of the jobs they should take, what they should wear, uh, who they should date. In fact, in Mark's case, they actually flew him around to different cities to, to sort of set him up with different mates. Now, some of you may say that's not a bad idea. I'd go for that if the church <laughs> did that, right? But, you know, this was not the kind of help you, you would want in that direction. Uh, but they were also cultic in their practice. Uh, they would often target uh, freshmen. I was a freshman on that campus. Uh, they would inundate them with community and relationship and lots of time spent, lots of affirmation. And then when you began to start, hey, this is getting a little controlling and pull back, they'd threaten you with hell. Uh, they traded people as projects, not people. And it got to the point after I'd left the church, if I was on the subway and I heard a conversation start up behind me, Ten seconds into it, just by the tone and the agenda and the way I knew it was someone from that church. And it was. I'd hear the punchline. You ought to come to my church, Boston Church of Christ. And I'd go, there they are. It was the character that gave it away, the character of the witness. Now, in the first century, there was plenty of that. Traveling philosophers, traveling prophets that would go around. They would infiltrate the early church. And so you find a lot of writing in the, the uh, New Testament about false teachers. In fact, uh, one of the reasons the books of the Bible were recognized by the early church was that false books began to emerge. And they said, we need to recognize what was really authentic, what Jesus gave us and what the apostles had written. And the apostle Paul would describe these characters. They'd be known by people that caused controversy. They were quarrelsome, foolish controversies they'd like to dwell on. They put roadblocks for people believing in Jesus, either through legalism, the book of Galatians, saying you've got to do these things to be accepted by God, not only by grace, but works you had to do, or asceticism, which is you had to deny certain things like marriage or foods to be acceptable to God. And in this passage, he gives us a few more markers of what would be a bad witness, a bad character. He talks about error. A bad witness is uninformed about their faith. Um, you can think about a lot of objections and questions that people have to the Christian faith. You may have some in this room. You know, isn't the Bible full of mistakes? Did Jesus really say he was the Messiah? Didn't the church say he was the Messiah? Does the, doesn't the Bible support slavery? The list could go on and on of questions and objections that people have. And a bad witness doesn't take time to answer those questions well. They don't do the time to study, and so the Christian faith ends up looking simplistic and superficial and maybe unjust. In 1 Peter, we're told, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We're instructed to actually prepare to give good answers. So a bad witness doesn't do that. A bad witness 
may do the opposite, though. They may be too quick to give answers. The Proverbs say that a fool answers quickly. So they didn't take their time to actually listen to people and listen to their objections. I've mentioned this a couple times. I'll say it again. When I was in seminary in our apologetics class, the class where you're taught to learn to give answers for the faith, our professor, Jerem Bars, who spoke at one of our retreat, had everybody said, I want you to start a conversation with a non-Christian, and I want you to write a paper where half of it is representing what they believe, and the other half is you answering it. And he said, all of you spent far little time on the first part. So quick to give answers, especially a bunch of seminarians, right? Or it may be the error takes form in improperly weighting things. Jesus critiqued the religious leader saying, you can't discern between the weightier matters of the law and the lesser matters of the law. And so it's someone that tends to focus in on issues like maybe it's the mode of baptism or the end times or some focus on the sovereignty of God and salvation, you know, uh, superlapsarianism, infralapsarianism. If you don't know what those words are, I'm glad. You know, you don't need to hear them if you're first hearing about the Christian faith. So the question is, when someone meets a Christian, what do they hear most about? Right? And so a bad character, a bad witness misses that. A second thing is a bad witness, he mentions, has deceit. The problem here is not being ill-prepared, it's being ill-intentioned. Maybe it's deceit in that um, you hide the agenda. I don't think this happens as much as it used to in the church, but you know the old uh, spaghetti dinner thing, where someone would uh, invite a non-Christian friend and say, come to a dinner at my church, and then they realize that uh, conversion is for dessert, right? They're supposed to convert for dessert uh, or before they get their dessert. Listen, uh, you know, it's wonderful to share the gospel and ask people to convert. If you're not converted, I hope you will convert. But the question is about trust, right? A bad witness isn't building trust. Or maybe they're just hiding the full cost of the gospel, they love to talk about God's love, but not his holiness. They love to talk about his grace, but not his justice. Another part of being a bad witness, Paul mentions in verse 4 and 5, is flattery and people-pleasing. He wrote in another letter to Timothy, one of his co-workers, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. A bad witness essentially just echoes what the culture is already believing. There's nothing really prophetic about their Christian beliefs. Uh, there's someone that is, when they're at a table with relatives or friends that don't know the Christian faith, they're more eager to be agreeable than they are to speak the truth. And underneath this, Paul would say that there's a desire for glory. I mean, this really gets close to home, at least I feel it. Uh, this desire to appear, especially in this city, a sophisticated, educated, well thought of. And so this desire for glory, it might be, if you're honest, the desire for glory is what brought you to Washington, D.C. Maybe it's what gets you up in the morning. Maybe it's what's driving your career right now. But the thing is, our desire for glory can never function alongside being an honest witness. I mean, let me paint this picture for you. Imagine you have the opportunity 
to meet the person you idolize the most. I mean, maybe it's someone in your career, maybe it's a movie star, maybe it's the last American idol. I don't know who it is. You know, someone that you really idolize. And imagine you're in their company, you're having dinner, and you're spending time, and all of a sudden they say something that is just completely false and untrue about the Christian faith. Would you say anything? That would be a tempting situation for me. I really like people to like me. Sometimes I wonder if my witness in my neighborhood is, isn't Glenn nice? It's terrible to be nice, isn't it? It's a t- don't be nice, right? There's lots of better things to be than nice. We want to be loving. We want to be just. We want to be anyway. I'll stop there. And what we find in the gospel is Jesus and the apostle Paul intentionally forsook the glory of the world. Here the Son of God, who is of all glory, comes and lives in a way, if you know the life of Jesus, he takes a low place where people didn't even recognize him. He becomes a curse. He becomes hated, the opposite of glory. And the apostles follow suit. Uh, The apostle Paul was once in Corinth, a town that is much like our town. It was a town that cared a lot about speeches, education, white-collar jobs. And when the apostle Paul showed up, He intentionally took a blue-collar job. He made tents. He didn't use fancy speech. He led with his weakness, and he said, the reason I did this was so that you might know about the gospel, that God chose to use the foolish, the weak, the low, and despised to show what the gospel of grace is really about. And this ought to encourage every one of us in this room, because if you are someone that's a Christian and you long to be a witness, maybe what holds you back is, I don't know enough, my life isn't attractive enough, I wish I had that person's resume, then I could really be a good witness. I wish I had the respect of these people, then I could really be a good witness. And what the gospel tells us is what people need more than all that stuff is your weakness. They need your weakness and your need for God's grace. That's what's lacking in our city. Could I see someone live honestly with their need of God's grace and know the power of that? But it's also two more on the side of a bad character witness, greed. He mentions financial gain. Now, you know, today, sadly, that still exists in the corporate church where um, God is sometimes presented as a broker of blessing and believers as having the power of attorney to claim their ticket, their lottery ticket. Uh, Ross Dothit, um, a guy that's a, you know, a columnist for the New York Times, wrote a really wonderful book called Bad Religion, where he talked about bad versions of Christianity. And he spends time on money. And he's talking about a well-known evangelist. I'm not going to say the name. But he says, he doesn't necessarily promise his readers that God will give, him, give them a big house. He just tells stories about how God has blessed him with big house and possessions, right? And so the idea is, well, if you're like me, God will bless you that way. And then he goes on to say, the message is, if you don't unleash your words in the right direction, if you don't call in a favor, you will not experience those blessings. And unfortunately, the people that tend to get taken advantage of are the poor, Immigrants, people that have just come to the country trying to work their way, these are the ones they get preyed upon. But maybe this works a little different in our circles. Maybe it is that my devotion to my standard of living 
and my status and the way I live actually precludes me from having relationships with people that don't run in those circles. And so my witness is limited in that I'm committed to a certain lifestyle of money and luxury and socializing whereby I don't have a witness to people that aren't like me, basically. But lastly, he also mentions a bad witness is marked by impurity. Um, and likely what he means by here is sexual impurity. Last night, uh, Meg and I watched the powerful, upsetting film, Spotlight. And you know it's about the clergy abuse that occurred in the Catholic Church. We actually lived in Boston during that time. And uh, one of the powerful parts, I think, of it was um, the victims would say, I wanted to say no. I wanted to resist, but how can you say no to God? And there you see, you know, this close relationship between the witnesses of God, in that case, the clergy of God, and their behavior. I don't know if there's anything more wicked than the idea of a Christian leader, a clergy person, taking advantage of someone that way. Many of these folks uh, became addicts. Many of them took their own lives. Devastating. But, again, we have to move it down on an everyday witness level. And I want to be careful as I say this. I'm on the front end, okay? Because I'm not liking it to the illustration I just said. Um, and that is when Christians become romantically involved with those that are not Christians. And uh, let me begin by saying, I'm not coming at you on a high horse because I did that when I was in college. And I learned from it. And here's why it compromises the witness. Number one, it compromises the witnesser because it makes you live in a world where my romantic life can have nothing to do with my spiritual life. But the thing is, the scripture actually uses our romantic life, marriage, Ephesians 5, as an, an analogy for knowing God's love. So I regularly say to people, don't forget your first marriage. You're married to Jesus first. And so on that hand, it compromises the witnesser, but it also does harm to the one they're witnessing to. The hallmark of the Christian gospel is unconditional grace, unconditional love. Come to God as you are. But the message given to the word pe person being witnessed to is, you need to change your life and convert if you're going to marry me. Mixed messages, right? It's just not helpful. And so Christian folks need to think deeply about that part of their lives and the witness it gives. Again, I, I don't come at you self-righteously because I learn from my own failure that way. But enough of the bad witness stuff, right? Hey, let's move on to the good witness. Let's move on to the good witness. And I think we could summarize this by saying it's bold love. Bold love. Boldness. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And here, the Apostle Paul is referring to when he was witnessing to the Thessalonians, he and his partners were basically uh, taken by a mob and unjustly arrested and brought before the authorities there. But he also mentions Philippi, and Philippi it even went worse. A mob came and took them, beat them. They were then arrested, thrown in the stocks, and suffered that they were also singing to God while they did. That was part of their witness. But the point is this, that the witness of the Thessalonians came at great cost. Great cost. Jesus shared the gospel 
with the world at the cost of his life. One of the church fathers said that the, the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. The church has begun by the sacrifice of men and women in faith. And so Christians are people that say, I've come to understand that the gospel is so valuable to me. I've come to understand Jesus Christ in this way and God's love in me and for me. I've come to understand that he is a jewel that I'm willing to forgo livelihood in even my life for the sake of witness. And, you know, the cost is getting greater in the United States. Stories of someone being fired because they have a Bible in their desk or someone being uh, let loose from the board because they donated out of their personal money to an organization that wasn't approved. Some of you might be fearful of your own jobs because of your witness. I was talking to someone this morning, they said, man, I really wrestle with this. You know, one of my jobs was working with the State Department. How, how do I do this? It takes a lot of wisdom, right? It takes a lot of understanding to know when one speak, but we can never allow fear to make us mute. We can never allow intimidation to make us stop sharing the good news of God's grace because we understand it comes at a cost. But the deeper question I had in my mind as I was reading this was, well, where can I get some of that boldness, right? Where can I get some of that power? And this is one of the, you know, beautiful things about the Christian gospel. I've been reading the book of Acts post-Easter, and it's been really interesting to read it because, you know, before Jesus is crucified, what do you find about the disciples? They're arguing about who's going to have more glory, who's going to be greatest, who's going to get the ascendancy, right? They're arguing about that. And then when it comes to put their money where their mouth is, they flee from Jesus. Peter, the bold one, denies Jesus three times. And there they are up in a room hiding behind locked doors until something happens. The spirit of Jesus gets a hold of them. That was the difference. If you're wanting to know what makes the difference between a afraid witness and a bold witness, it's that. The Spirit of Jesus got a hold of them. And what do you find? Peter is used of God to bring 5,000 people to Christ. I love God's irony. I love the way God takes the very weakness. This is the guy that couldn't get out of his mouth. Yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And now what's coming out of his mouth is drawing thousands of people. God will do that, won't he? He'll use our weakness. He'll use that very thing that we think couldn't be a witness, and he'll use it for his strength if the Spirit of Jesus gets a hold of you. But the way that happens, we're told, Paul says that we were bold in the presence of God. And so the boldness is attached somehow to being in God's presence. What happens when you spend time in God's presence? A lot of things happen. One is you become assured of your acceptance before him. What are we told in the gospel, in the book of Galatians? Or rather, um, yeah, the book of Galatians. You have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of sonship. So you no longer have to be fearful. What do we find when we're in the presence of God? We find righteousness in the presence of God. Paul says, I consider all things a loss, all things rubbish, refuse, compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ and his righteousness in my life. That's where boldness comes from. What else do you find in the presence of God? You find that you're covered in his presence. 
You can go to Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul uses the armor of a Roman soldier to talk about the spiritual armor that God has put on his people. And if you read back in the Old Testament, you realize basically the same is said about the way God is dressed. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the feet that, you know, have the gospel of good news and the peace, the sword of the spirit. This understanding that he was covered, he was dressed by God in the presence of God. Before you get dressed in the morning, are you dressing with that? Before you get dressed in the morning and go out and face the world, do you understand, I have this upon me by God? What else do we learn in the presence of God? We learn that we're empowered by God. I love all the language you find in the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, about the power of the resurrection of the Spirit. He repeats it. He, you know, he'll say he, the great might of the working of his great might and strength doubles up the words because he just can't get it out how powerful it is to have the life of the Son of God living in you. I mean, this is what the Christian faith is teaching. Jesus rose from the dead, and by faith, people come to know them, and then he lives in them with that sort of power, the same power that raised him from the dead, the same power that will renew the heavens and the earth is dwelling in you. It's not so much you mustering up the power, it's you recognizing the power, right? This is what he gives us. And what else, lastly, do we find in the presence of God? Love. Perfect love casts all our fear. If I can stop needing the world's acceptance, and I don't mean, we all need acceptance from one another, but you know what I mean, fundamental acceptance. If I can stop needing the acceptance of the world, if I can stop needing the covering of the world, if I can stop needing the righteousness of the world, if I can stop needing the power of the city, if I can stop needing the love and approval of people, you know something, I think I'd be a better witness. I think you will be too. I think you will be too, but lastly, I led us into love. Let's finish with that. Paul says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. I think this is one of um, the greatest challenges we face. Uh, and in another translation, he says, we were delighted to share not only the gospel, but our very, li our very lives. It's hard for us to share our lives, right? Because many of us are very busy people. Um, I include myself in that. Sometimes I wonder, you know, what do my neighbors see as I run from the car to the house or I run up and down the street going, gee, I hope that neighbor doesn't stop and say hi, I'm really busy, right? What is it that, you know, we're busy folk. And I, I wanna maybe spin this thing a little different because I, my fear is as we talk about witnessing and sharing, uh, we tend to think, oh, great, another thing I have to add to my life. I'm already tired. I already still fried. I already feel guilty, Glenn. This is another thing I'll just add to the guilt pile. I don't think we need to look at witnessing as adding to our lives, but rather opening our lives. Not adding to your life, simply opening the life that you already have. That's a different issue, right? That's an issue of vulnerability. That's an issue of saying, you know something? Uh, my life needs you. I need you in my life. And as we invite people that don't share our faith into our lives because we need them, we find that our hearts fill with affection. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. Look at the words he piles up. Affectionately desirous of you because you had become very dear to us. It sounds like he's, I mean, that sounds like a Hallmark card, right? affectionately desirous of you because you came so dear to us. 
they had such affection for the Thessalonians. And then he raises these two images that are so intimate. He talks about, we were, we were like mothers and fathers to you. You know, he talks about a mother. Isaiah 66 has this picture of God relating to us as a mother. And he says, Israel, I'm going to nurse you at my breast. I'm going to bounce you on my knee. I'm going to carry you on my hip. This is the way God relates to his people, mothering them. Even if a nursing mother forgets the baby on her breast, I could never forget you. This is the God of heaven and earth. He begins to shape his people that way. I mean, think about mothers, right? I mean, we have lots of mothers in this room and lots that are nursing kids on their breast, right? Mothers arrange and conform their lives to meet the needs of this one person. I mean, everything changes. Everything that they do so they can meet the needs this child, they sacrifice, they give up. It's amazing to me, you know, ha having a wife that gave birth to two, uh, you know, beautiful girls, I remember being in the waiting room and watching her give birth. What's amazing to me is after a woman gives birth once and goes through that, then she'll say, hey, let's do that again. You know, I want to have another baby. It's amazing. You know, I've had to sacrifice. It's this thing. Well, God is saying that the witnesses of Christ need to be that way with other people where it grows in our heart to say, you know, I'm glad that you're cutting into my free time. I'm glad that you're cutting into my career time. It's more important to me that I could be with you and nurture you along with some of your questions, that I could sacrifice and serve you. But then he also says, as a father, whereas the mother is nurturing and sacrificing, the, the, what he gives as a father is someone who's encouraging and exhorting. You know, in that witnessing process going, you know, hey, man, I, I need to challenge you a little bit here. I need to press you ahead. I want to encourage you to say, you can do this. You know, don't give up on your questions. Don't give up on your doubts and things like that. Don't just say there's no answers. You can do this. Press on. In any way I can help you to press on, do it. And maybe occasionally saying, hey, you know, I, ne I need to ask you this hard question. That's just normal for any friendship. But this is the way, in conclusion, Paul calls people to be approved or tested, he says. Twice he says, God is my witness. I stand before God, and each of us will. Each of us will stand before God. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So let me say this. To close, witnessing, I think think of it less about what you do and more about who you are. Because if you are a Christian here, if you're a Christian here, you are a witness. You are by identity. God has made you an ambassador. You don't have to go looking for the office. You're in the office. But more so, think about it widely, not just the conversations you have with people, but how is my witness in my business dealings? How is my witness when I'm working on a campaign or I'm a student in a classroom? What's my witness like there? Do I do my homework? We often ask our elder and diaconate candidates this question. If, you, if, if one of your coworkers realized that you were being nominated for this position, would they be shocked? It matters what the outside world thinks about Christians. It matters what the outside world thinks about who we are before them. And lastly, I would just say, who needs your witness? Somebody does. 
I needed somebody's witness. You needed somebody's witness. Who needs your witness? Pray about that this week. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for the way that you've witnessed to us. Thank you for the ways that you have spoken your good news to us. We pray that you would use us as messengers with beautiful feet. In Christ's name, amen.